I will sing a new song to you. I will sing a new song to you, for you are just and righteous. I will sing a new song to you, for you are God alone. You are God alone. I will sing a new song to you, for you are God alone. I will sing a new song to you, for you are God alone. I will sing a new song to you, for you are God alone. I will sing a new song to you, for you alone. I lay down my idols, O Lord. I lament, Lord. I lay down my idols. I will sing a new song to you. I will sing a new song to you, Jesus. To you alone, I will sing. I will sing. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. For all the gods of all the peoples, Idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord is king. The Lord is king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. <laughs> for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth.
I'm so glad you're able to join us today. As we're standing here on the beach next to the water at Richmond Park, I'm reminded of my love for flying kites, because as long as I can remember, I've loved to fly kites. The very first one I remember getting as a child had the Jolly Green Giant logo on it, if you remember that. As I recall, we had to save up so many proofs of purchase, and once we'd mailed them in, we uh, got a kite back in the mail. Looking back, I realized it was really a great ploy to get me as a five-year-old boy to eat my vegetables. Well, that first kite was pretty simple, and I don't imagine it lasted very long. This one's a little bit more complex. It has two strings so that you're able to have some control over it. Some kites even have four points of contact, and you can do all kinds of amazing thing with, things with those, even make them hover upside down. But you know, no matter how simple or how complex a kite is, they all have one thing in common. They are only able to soar if they're connected to the ground. Praise is like that. We as humans have a propensity to praise. We have a yearn to worship, but the only way that our praise can truly soar is if it's connected to the truth of who God is. And if that truth leads us to relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. For the last several weeks, Pastor Aaron Williams has been leading us through several of the Psalms of David. We've been looking to David as our spiritual guide. Just like us, David was flawed. In fact, he was guilty of grievous sin. But the Bible also says that he was a man after God's own heart. And despite his mistakes, God used him. And God had relationship with him. And no matter what's in my past and what's in your past, God can use us too. And God can give us beautiful, life-changing relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. As we prepare to dive into the Psalms today, I want to pray along with David, the 14th verse of Psalm 19. Won't you pray with me? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And Lord, I pray for myself and for each person joining us that you would soften our hearts, that you would make us receptive to your Holy Spirit, and you would change us by the resurrection power of Jesus so that we may glorify you and worship you as our King. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Well, today we're looking at Psalm 96. And if you'd like, I encourage you to get out a Bible and open it up. If you take the book and open up to roughly the middle, you'll probably find the book of Psalms. Like all of the Psalms in this series, Psalm 96 was composed by David. We know that because we see a form of it in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 through 33, where it is attributed to David. The occasion of its use was the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem after an absence of many years. Before the reign of David's predecessor, King Saul, the Ark had been captured and taken as a spoil of battle by the Philistines. They soon regretted it, though, because everywhere they took the Ark, disease broke out among the Philistine people. And so after a period of about seven months, the Philistines decided to return the Ark to Israel. Now, the Ark was extremely important in Hebrew worship. And yet after the Philistines returned it, it was laid aside for about 20 years in a small town 
just a few miles away from Jerusalem. By bringing it back to Jerusalem, David was making a statement about the importance, the central importance of worship of God in the life of Israel. And on the occasion of its return, he commanded a psalm of praise to be sung, a portion of which is repeated here in Psalm 96. A theme that runs all throughout this psalm is that God the King is not only to be worshipped by Israel, but his kingship extends beyond Israel to cover all the people of the world. We see this repeatedly with terms like all the earth, all people, and all nation. This, in fact, is what lifts this song and, and all of Scripture out of the realm of history and puts it right into our lives today. For God's word is absolutely as relevant for us right now as it was for those who first heard it thousands of years ago. This psalm, written by an earthly king, is full of praise for the ultimate king. It explores the kingship of God in three different sections, each of which can be summarized by the word that begins the section. The first is the word sing, and we see that in the first six verses. The second is the word ascribe that we see in verses seven through nine. And then finally, the simple word say that we find in the last few verses of the psalm. Let's take a look at each one of these sections in turn. The first six verses of our psalm are summarized by the word sing. And in fact, the first three are specifically a call to praise. They say, starting at verse one, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Notice that the first three lines of this psalm say the same thing, sing to the Lord. Do you think singing is important to God? It certainly is. Now, I'm not saying you all need to rush out and sign up for voice lessons or even join a choir. God is not so much concerned with the quality of our singing as the quality of our heart as we sing praise to him. Even in David's time, there were the trained musicians that led temple worship, but these commands are not limited to the worship leaders. They are for all of us, sing to the Lord. The Bible mentions the word singing about 400 times, and in God's word, there are all told about 50 direct commands to the believer to sing to God. The book of Psalms is the largest book in the whole Bible, and it is nothing more and nothing less than a book of poetry intended to be sung. In fact, it's really the very first hymnal. Gordon Bohr was my mentor in seminary, and he had a saying that I love, to be a Christian who doesn't sing is like to be a fish that doesn't swim. Martin Luther, the German pastor and reformer, was well known for his opinions about music. Just as he was determined to put God's word in the hands of the people in a language that they could understand, he also wanted to restore the place of music in Christian worship, even at a time when some of his fellow reformers were stifling it. Here's one of his famous quotes. 
Next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts, and spirits. Our dear fathers and prophets did not desire without reason that music be always used in the churches. Hence, we have so many songs and psalms. This precious gift has been given to mankind alone that we might thereby be reminded that God has created mankind for the express purpose of praising and extolling God. In another passage, Martin Luther, after talking about the virtues of music, wrote these words, A person who gives this some thought and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of donkeys and the grunting of hogs. Well, we may not fully agree with his attitude toward the musically unenlightened. You can't help but deny Luther's passion for music as an effective and beautiful gift from the hand of God. Here's one more thought about the importance of singing. The book of the prophet Zephaniah is a small book that can be found near the end of the Old Testament. The majority of it is declaring judgment on those who worship false gods and who refuse to acknowledge the one true God. But near the end of the book, the prophet tells of people turning back to God in humility. And then he writes eloquently of God's response. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, we read this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings. When you come to him in humble repentance, God's response is to exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine anything more beautiful? God himself is a singer, and he desires for us to be like him in that regard. So the first three verses give the emphatic command to everyone to sing praise to the Lord. The next three verses tell us why. Starting at verse 4, it says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be, be, to be revered above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. God the Lord is to be revered above all gods because, well, he made everything. While the gods of the peoples, in other words, the regional idols that were worshipped by many of the people surrounding Israel, are nothing but statues made of stone, metal, and wood. Indeed, they are man-made from materials that were created by God. There's actually a pun here that we can't see in the English translation, but that would have been obvious to the singers of the original Hebrew poetry. The word that is translated for us as gods is Elohim. The word translated worthless idols is Elilim. As you can see, the words sound very similar. And one way to translate the sense of this phrase might be to say something like, those mighty gods are mighty useless. In verse 6, we see the king of kings' royal attendance. Wherever he is, these attributes necessarily accompany him. He is full of honor, majesty, strength, and beauty. And therefore, his very presence demands praise and worship. 
The second section of the psalm begins in verse 7 with the word ascribe. Now, ascribe is kind of a fancy, somewhat old-fashioned word, but the Hebrew word it's translating means simply to give. In this context, we can think of it as to give what is due, to give what is fitting. So let's look now at verses 7 through 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. Tremble before him all the earth. Just as the psalm begins with the, the threefold admonition to sing, this section begins by saying three times in a row, ascribe to the Lord to give God his due. Another important thing to note here is who is commanded to ascribe glory and strength and offerings and worship to God. Again, it's the families of the peoples. Another way to translate that phrase is tribes of the nations. In other words, the commands here are not just for the nation of Israel, but they're for the Gentiles as well. With phrases like this sprinkled throughout the psalm, we realize that no one is exempt from the call of God, not the geographically remote nations of King David's time, and none of us who are chronologically remote from the time when these words were written. While the first few verses of the psalm specifically say to sing to God and to praise him, verses 7 through 9 take it further. They say that the people of the earth must submit to him in worship. What does this mean exactly? While the terms praise and worship are often used together, they have different meanings. To praise is to, ex is to express approval and admiration. And while this song talks about praising God, it's perfectly acceptable to praise a human being. When we say to a coworker, hey, great job on that presentation, we're praising them, right? But worship, on the other hand, goes beyond praise. It implies adoration, reverence, and also submission. Rightly understood, only God is worthy of our worship. Warren Wearsby was a beloved pastor and a prolific author who just this past year went home to glory at the age of 89. He wrote a book called Real Worship, and in that book, he defines worship this way. He says, it is the believer's response of all that he is, mind, emotions, will, and body, to all that God is and says and does. That's a pretty densely packed sentence, so let me say it again. Worship is the believer's response of all that he is, mind, emotions, will, and body to all that God is and says and does. So worship is the believer's response to God, his wholehearted, his whole being's response to God. And worship is costly. The King David understood this is shown in 2 Samuel chapter 24 when David went to build an, build an altar to the Lord at the site of a threshing floor that belonged to a man named Arona. Arona tried to give his land to the king, but David responded, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. It cost me nothing. So worship demands action. The Hebrew word for worship implies bowing down and offering oneself, not just giving lip service. This is also seen in verse 8 where it says to bring an offering. 
Although we can praise God at no real cost to ourselves, to worship him means to submit ourselves to him. Real worship demands humility. Real worship demands obedience. Real worship demands submitting our will to God's will. Real worship must be woven into the very fabric of our every waking moment. And real worship demands, as Isaac Watts put it, my life, my soul, my all. We'll come back to that thought in a few minutes. But let's go on now and look at the rest of the psalm. The third section of the psalm begins with the word say. If God is worthy of our ultimate worship, then that news is far too good to keep to ourselves. And so in verse 10, David writes this, Say among the nations, the Lord is king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, the judgment spoken of here is not just doom and gloom. The context shows that God's judgment is a good thing. He will judge the peoples with equity. He will right all wrongs and restore justice to his creation. The next verses emphasize this as they say, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. It's so wonderful to be here at Richmond Beach today. I love being at the beach. I just love the water. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember Jacques Cousteau, but when I was a kid, I used to love to watch the documentaries that he made, and I dreamt of one day being an underwater photographer, maybe even working for Jacques Cousteau. I imagined myself floating around coral reefs and besides all kinds of marine animals, capturing in beautiful shades of blue and green the beauty of the scene before me. But when you think of the vastness of the world's oceans, the percentage of it that I've seen doesn't even register on the scale. I've only seen the teeniest, tiniest fraction of the world's sea creatures. In fact, some scientists estimate that we've only even classified about, uh, about 9% of the world's ocean species. And when you include the land creatures, the total number of different species on Earth absolutely boggles the mind. And that's not the number of creatures, that's just the number of different species that God has created on this Earth. But that's how rich and beautiful and diverse life on this planet is. Scientists have estimated that the total number of Earth's living creatures is somewhere around one trillion. With that in mind, let's look back at verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. God is so vast and so worthy of worship that the psalmist can't find words big enough to do him justice. He says, let everything in the sky and the sea and the fields rejoice and give praise to God. He is more than worthy of the praise of the trillion creatures on earth. And it is both our privilege and our duty to say along with David, the Lord is King. 
Throughout the Old Testament, we see that one of God's purposes for his people was that they would be a light to the nations, that God would be revealed through his dealings with them. Israel was to express to the pagan world the truth of who God is and of the relationship that he wants with mankind. But they so often floundered in the area of worship that they rarely were that light to the nations. Over and over again, they turned from the one true God and flirted with idols. Their evangelistic purpose was thwarted by a lack of attention to the priority of worship. The kite was not connected to the ground, and so it failed to soar. If you read the Old Testament prophets, you see that their continual plea was for Israel to return to their God, to return to their first love and adoration of him. And that's God's call to us today to lay aside anything that takes the primary place in our life, the place that is rightly reserved for no one and nothing but Jesus Christ. Through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, God provides the way for us to know him, not just know about him, but to have beautiful, life-changing, intimate relationship with him. The one who created all this and so much more, loves you and longs for you to know him and love him. If you already know Jesus as your Savior, God's call today may be for you to return to your first love, to continually give him first place in your life, to live a life of real worship, a worship that demands your life, your soul, your all. And if you've never taken that step, I urge you to give your life to Jesus today. If you want to begin a relationship with the God who created you, I invite you to pray along with me right now. Dear Lord, I recognize that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I also recognize that the proper wage for my sin is death. But I thank you that through Jesus Christ, you offer me the free gift of eternal life. I thank you for demonstrating your love for me through Christ's death on the cross before I ever even knew my need. God, I declare that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for justifying me through faith. Thank you for giving me true peace that can only come from you. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that you have given me eternal life. I give myself freely and with joy to you. Thank you that I am your child, having been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. In his powerful name, amen. There's a website address on your screen right now. It's upc.org slash Jesus. upc.org slash Jesus. If you just prayed that prayer with me, or perhaps you haven't yet taken that step, but you'd like to know more about becoming a follower of Jesus, please go to that website.
There's more information, and if you desire, you can even click through to talk with someone right now about following Jesus.